Fiction. Radio Play, an oft-ridiculed frontier. It all started when a remote programming experiment some community radio station on the central coast of California was conducting went a little caca. Their names are Gall, Moses, and Ted. They're lost, aren't we all? One of them owns an astronaut costume, shot through a wormhole for the sake of narrative explanation. Anyway, here they are, bouncing around speculative fiction thematic time and space, rather timidly going where many a man has gone before. These are the voyages of the Incompanots. Interior Loading Bay, unnamed Star Wars project. Lasers narrowly avoid the heads of our heroes as they run towards the beat-up cruiser. Ted, lovable, sassy, droidy, scuffles anxiously, struggling to keep up. Oh dear, oh my, not again! Moses, long flaxen hair tied up in a tight bun, eagerly shoots his pistol at a horde of stormtroopers on their tail. Gaul, hair severely shorn, battle-worn and battle-ready, smiles at their young apprentice. Nice shot, little one. Thanks, Captain. I couldn't have done it without you. Ted, did you make sure to set the destruction sequence? I mean, do you really have to ask? It's not like I haven't saved your fleshy little butts before. Holding the enemy off with their expert rifle fire, our heroes dash into the cockpit of their spacecraft. Alright boys, hold on to your butts! Excuse me, but I am a droid, and therefore have no gender. But my voice may be programmed male, I do not subscribe to your absurd humanoid constructs. I'm just excited to see my beloved Greg again. Our love is what sustains me in our fight for justice. Stop! Cut! Bring the lights up. This isn't going to work. Spotlights fill the room, revealing a clutch of people, milling around with headsets, cameras, and equipment. Who's that? Eh, some studio bigwig. Ugh, I was really getting into that last take. Look, the script's been leaked to the fanboys. They've got their hands on it. They're not happy. Gays? Gender non-conforming robots? A woman captain? This is Star Wars, not social justice wars. Um, excuse me, sir, but I believe my character is actually non-binary. I mean, honestly, what does that even mean? Look, we're bringing in a new director. I got ten screenwriters working on this as we speak. Great, guys. I think we're really going to like all the changes the Chads are bringing to the project. I'm happy, you're happy, we're happy! See? I told you, Ted. It doesn't matter what parallel universe you're in. Star Wars is the one constant. Disney's got a real hold on the multiverse, huh? Well, I still don't think it's hopeless. We've got infinite timelines and nothing better to do. On to the next one. Gaul, Moses, and Ted's bodies begin to fade and disappear. One day I'll be reunited with you again, my beloved Greg. In solidarity, the crew begins to disperse and head home, as a stunned Brian frantically paces about the set. Wait, where are you all going? Think about the Chads! What about the Chads? Not again, Incompanats!
film, my beautiful film, you've destroyed it. Um, hey, what's up? My name is Gall, and I am the the writer, director, and auteur of of my life. <laughs> no, you wrote all my lines, also, Gall. That's yeah. true. That's true. Yeah, this is Gal a scripted a show script every week. That's true. All of this is scripted, and I'll I will say this: it's some pretty you mean that noise impressive... your husband made in the background. <laughs> scripted. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's weird how many awkward moments you write into the script. It's also weird that you wrote me this line where I yeah, complain I'm, about it. But I'm like a mumblecore genius. Yeah, it gives it a very You're natural. Like a Charlie feel. Kaufman. <laughs> it's really whiz natural. Kid. <laughs> yeah, and um, oh. Here's a transition from that nonsense. <laughs> this is Last Refuge of the Incompetent. <laughs> we are a speculative fiction show. Every week we think of a new theme and we curate some movies and some writing and some music all around that theme. And this week, well, it's it's a weird theme. I'm calling it speculative speculative fiction or why wasn't this movie made? The great unrealized works. <laughs> I don't know if all of them are great or would have been great, but they are mostly unrealized. The great attempts to make art (laughs) that didn't get out, but documentaries about them did, and those are art too. And also, you can read the scripts that some people wrote. Right, the unmade scripts. I was thinking along the lines of music of just trying to like album, like great unfinished albums that were never officially released. Oh, I'm Moses, by the way. (laughs) Oh yeah! Oh yeah! I'm Ted. Ted, yeah. Um, yeah, that is my name. Oh. Yeah. Mm. Man, if you guys are a fan of this show and you listened last week and you're like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> is this conversation going to be of the same caliber? <laughs> we don't have any professors on this time. <laughs> we do not. We're wild. We're le- nobody we're here loose. but us ape men. <laughs> I mean, sorry, I'm dog men. I'm an ape man. I'm an ape ape man. Oh, so, yeah, no. A pig woman. Dog men I- and pig women. And I'll yeah. let you sort out who's who. On this list of albums that were never <laughs> finished or officially released, mm-hmm. the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Human Highway, is that related to the movie Human Highway that Neil Young later made in the early 80s? It might be. I didn't look too deep Is that a sci-fi it. film about a world <laughs> paved with humans? Uh, maybe. Devo's in it. Um, oh, cool. so that's a sci-fi band. I think it maybe may, may have like something of a sci-fi premise. Coolest one on this list was "Brain Opera" by Bonzo Dog Duda Band, which is this like unrealized or unfulfilled BBC radio opera. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff on here. There's a lot of Beach Boys stuff because Brian Wilson wrote a lot of music that never really well. It eventually saw the light of day, but you know, "Celebration of the Lizard" is like a 17-minute long poem by Jim Morrison. That sounds awful. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll cut 30 seconds from that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a few stuff here. I mean, a lot of it is like when you're like looking for like unfinished albums, you're going to only you're going to get like big names. So This band <laughs> that uh, never released an album almost I, did. So nobody's heard of either. I may yeah. have listened to Ted's unfinished album, so. Ted, you have an unfinished album? No, both of those were completed. Oh, They're good. just not good. You have completed albums that I've never heard about? You can get them on Bandcamp. What did you, what, what is it, like harpsichord or? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what is it just like yeah, mouth, um, like mouth sounds? No, that it's you... pure har- harpsichord improvisation. <laughs> well, one of them samples my voice. Oh, that's true. It's you reading, God, it's a story by who? It's uh, the world doll story. Excuse me, I have to go wash my hands <laughs> yeah really it's the one why line I can have remember. i really never heard about this 
Why are you keeping secrets from me? Secret to everybody. So maybe I will put some 1839 in science. Oh, is that what they're called? It's just, uh, it was picked using the random Wikipedia article button on Wikipedia. Yeah, anyway, there's some other stuff on there. I guess Dream uh, Factory by Prince. Ooh, well, toy. David Bo- David Bowie toy is cool, actually. Uh, That's yeah, cool. Okay, That's cool so one. it is David Bowie. It's not David Boy. <laughs> yes, <written> sorry. <laughs> David Boy. <laughs> In the in the first film about an unmade film, we're going to talk about there's uh, some magma, which is yeah. the big mm-hmm. uh, Zool band, uh, which is one of the more sci-fi subgenres ever. Going to play some Zool. Been Sweet. tempted for a while. Now's the chance. Yes. <laughs> Other than that, I haven't really thought about it. Yeah, it's a bit. It's a. It's harder. I mean, you could like isolate the theoretical films that were never made or that were made but in by different people in ways that were not intended or and then you can kind of find themes around there but then it would and look for music associated with all these yes, projects exactly so if hr giger has any spoken word album oh yeah, yeah he pro- oh my god his voice is insane <laughs> <laughs> it is insane if it, yeah <laughs> Yeah, H.R. Geiger both looks and sounds exactly how you expect. <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't yeah. expect anyone to sound like that. Deepest pool of deepest blue shall swim to you. Morning never waits for you, shall wait for you. And the stars. You're listening to the podcast edit of last refuge of the incompetent what does that mean well that means that all that lovely music that we curate for the radio that fits the theme perfectly and is eclectic and interesting and wonderful to listen to has to be edited out and if you don't care then keep listening but if you do care check us out on mixcloud the full unedited show can be found there. Don't know how to find that? Just go to lastrefugepod.com. Lastrefugepod.com. All the information you need can be found, accessed. Okay. Essentially, we're talking about four great works. (laughs) We're going to talk about two documentaries about directors that wanted to make movies that were not made the way that they wanted to make them, essentially, because a Dune was made. (laughs) (laughs) Then we're going to talk about actually a pretty decent script for Alien 3 that was turned into a comic book and an, an audio play. William Gibson's screenplay that was never produced, totally different screenplay was made for the produced version of Alien 3. And then we're going to end it with this script <laughs> called Ronnie Rocket by David Lynch that was never made. He wrote it right after Eraserhead and I guess tried to get it made and never did. So let's start with Jodorowsky's Dune. So Alejandro Jodorowsky was, I guess he started out in Mexico as a like experimental theater director. He's Chilean, but yeah, I think he's his career. But he started, started out in Mexico. In Mexico. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah. And then he was like, one day I'm going to make a movie. <laughs> and then he did it. He made El Topo, which is his first kind of... Right? El Topo was the first one? Yeah. Or, well, it wasn't his very first film. There was that oh, one yeah. that like led to riots in the theater. Yes, um, okay. Mexico, the but El Topo but... was probably the most, 
well well known in art houses around the, the world. Yeah, it's the one that yeah. started to give him like an international reputation. El and Holy Mountain are bananas. Yeah, Holy Those Mountain. Those movies are bananas. Yeah, they're totally bananas. And he, he stars in both of them, right? Uh, Yeah, he is like the main yeah. protagonist in as much as they have them. He was approached by his producer, maybe, who said, what do you want to make next? Yeah, his, his French, French producer. And he was like, Dune. A book he had not read. <laughs> Which I I've never read Dune, but I know Moses that you do you love Dune as a kid, right? Oh yeah, it was like my brother's favorite book or series of books. It was a big deal. Dune was a big deal. Frank Herbert's 1965 science fiction novel Dune. Um, the, oh, all this was going on in the mid 70s, pre Star Wars. This is very important. Alejandro Jodorowsky wanting to make this epic, this sci fi epic, is pre Star Wars. And I think what's most famous about it is just like the caliber and quality of people that he was able to wrangle up. <laughs> Movius and Chris Foss and Dan O'Bannon and Pink Floyd and Magma and H.R. Geiger and Salvador Dali. The Dali himself as Emperor of the Galaxy. What a terrible idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Ask a deranged egotist to be in your movie for a couple seconds, adding nothing to it, and pay him hundreds of thousands of dollars to do so because you think he's cool. He has this massive... Right, he storyboarded um, the entire script. With these incredible artists and then took them to studios and they were like, oh, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like something we'd like to do. Uh, not with you, though. <laughs> um, so both this documentary and the next one we're going to talk about are sort of framed. At least the initial framing and definitely the framing you get and like the trailers for them is uh, here's this visionary who didn't get to make this thing but the what you actually learn through the documentaries is that films are enormously complicated undertakings that take mm-hmm. lots and lots of people yeah. and are often actually completely derailed by single individuals who think they have this big thing and know exactly what they want to do on the other hand i guess i mean jodorowsky's dune he obviously thought it was going to be this big world-changing thing um that like can sorry excuse me (laughs) can you shut up please Your cat's unionizing. Yeah. They yeah, want they, longer break times. What? They have go an ahead. actual list of complaints. So we're happy to address them. <laughs> um, oh, go ahead, Ted. I interrupted you. Well, technically your cat's dead. Like, he obviously thought it was going to be this huge thing. And if it had been made, it probably would have fallen short of that of that idea in his head. I did end up impressed with that film that he was able to just like talk to a talented artist and have them make an entire like very detailed storyboard for that. I think he ended up making with Mobius what he should have just made with Mobius, which is a comic book with a Mobius. Comic book. Yeah, with yeah, call. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty awesome. <laughs> The other thing that people talk about or they theorize about is that these guys, Dan O'Bannon, Chris Foss, H.R. Geiger, and Mobius also went ahead and influenced sci-fi, the film genre. Yeah, the fact that they all met on this project then made a bunch of other projects later possible. So immediately Dan O'Bannon and H.R. Geiger went to make Alien. At some points, it kind of feels like the thesis of the film is that like if this had been made this would have been the star wars instead of star wars they also say because all these studios had this 
storyboard, this incredibly detailed storyboard, that somehow it trickled down into all these films like Barbarella. and And, Well, I mean, Barbarella had already been made, which is, I mean, the fact that Barbarella looks like it did probably is the biggest counter argument for saying mm-hmm. that Dune, even though unmade, changed filmmaking. I think it's an but- official stance to this podcast that Barbarella should have been what Star Wars was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, It should absolutely. have been the, the, gotten that level of popularity and spawned a whole series. And we should still yeah. be having new Barbarellas today. Back in, More like, the, bird people! Back in the 2000s there was buzz that they were going to remake Barbarella with uh, Lindsay Lohan. We, oh, I mean- we probably dodged a bullet with that one. I don't know. I feel like it could have been in the exact same spirit as the original. <laughs> it could have if if they allowed it to be. Yeah, I yeah. think that would have been a really bad time to remake Barbarella in the spirit of Barbarella. That, that's a time where like all movies have terrible color grading. Like everything oh, is yeah. just really green or really blue or really orange. Um, well, there could have been a rogue team just like <laughs> Hodorowski's Dune that broke but, all the rules. But yeah, near the end of the Hodorowski's Dune, they do show like frame from a story from the dune storyboard and then a movie that was made later that looks with a scene that looks very similar which does show you like how those the people who he brought together to maybe make dune did become like very influential but it also it kind of i think undercuts the idea that like it would have changed everything if yeah. it had been made because like movies like it were just a few years away from being made anyway it was just like slightly before hollywood was ready to spend that kinds of money on this genre and with a guy who did not inspire confidence in <laughs> yeah, he's too manic for the executive type well at some point this is my favorite story he's talking to pink floyd and he's like they were eating these hamburgers <laughs> and i was like i offer you the most important picture in the history of humanity and you are eating big macs and according to him they were then very respectful and had a great conversation that's how it works for me like the craziest anecdote in the movie is that he wanted his son to play paul, paul atreides and so he had him train with a martial artist oh, yeah. seven days yeah. a week for two years for a yeah. movie that was never made and his son is just kind of like yeah, yeah it was that, hard that, that influenced me um, yeah. <laughs> not a thing that happens to most children Like, of the movies that did end up getting made, I feel like the one that is closest to the, like, surreal excess that Hodorowsky's Dune could have been is Flash Gordon. Uh, mm. And they show a couple of images that are like storyboards from Dune. And, of course, Star Wars got made because a studio didn't let George Lucas make Flash Gordon, which he wanted to do because he was, like... A fan of the comic book. Everything's connected to Flash Gordon somehow. <laughs> That's what I was thinking was Flash Gordon. I was, I oh, was the imagining. Hawkman? Yeah. No, no, well, no. Bob- there are birdmen in oh, yeah, Barbarella. Yeah. She has sex with a birdman. He's an angel. Well, he's an angel, yeah. But he lives in a nest. True. <laughs> yeah, he lives in a nest. <laughs> well, angels do that. <laughs> no memory. Live in nests. <laughs> Two things to know about angels. But but anyway, but Dune was made. It, they sold the rights to, to David Lynch. Wow. They went through several more directors before then they brought in David Lynch. But David Lynch was also notoriously unhappy with what this studio made. I, I It's been a couple of years now since I've watched the David Lynch Dune. I remember enjoying it. Bowie's uh, in it, right? No, Sting. Sting. Sting, Patrick Stewart, of course, Kyle oh. McLaughlin. So I would recommend the documentary. It's definitely an interesting documentary. And I would recommend The Inkle. 
the Inkal. Yeah. Because Mobius is very cool. Yeah. When I first watched this documentary, I'm like, oh, I'm going to check out everything all these guys did. I don't think like Hodorowsky wrote, everyone was talking about like his ideas for the Dune being these like profoundly like <laughs> world changing. And it's like, I'm going to make the dad a, a, a eunuch. And, <laughs> and it's like, okay. <laughs> he also completely rewrites the ending. In oh, a way yeah. That I think is very undune from what I remember of Dune. Polytrides dies. Um, instead of be- becoming a big old worm. In dying, he becomes, like, all the people oh, around him. Oh, everybody's consciousness, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. then, like, the planet Dune becomes green and then becomes conscious and then travels around the universe, like, spreading this new <laughs> yeah. Dune consciousness or something. Oh, there was something else that they were saying, and I couldn't remember. I think at some point they were talking about he was the first guy that was going to show how an android is looking out into... And oh, I was yeah, like, the... didn't we just watch some, like... Didn't really Westworld cr- just do that? Didn't we? Yeah, didn't we just watch, like, some Android tiny POV? Andrew, um, Android POV thing or yeah, something? Yeah, no, Westworld definitely has that, and that's, like, 74, isn't it? 73. You're wrong, <laughs> Richard Stanley. I think he's the interviewee who says that. Oh, yeah, um, Richard Stanley. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, and Richard Stanley is in this in this documentary. Did they just bring him in because they were like, we need another guy who went through the same <laughs> situation? Yeah. I know a thing about what it's like to not have a film night. <laughs> He is amazing, Richard Stanley, but absolutely 100% out of his league for the amount of money that he was given. I think that's the situation. Well, yeah. Right? I mean, so I guess we're talking about Lost Soul now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Lost Soul, the doomed journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. So I hadn't seen his the film that they talk about as establishing his reputation. Hardware. Hardware. So I watched that last night. And apparently he made that for like a million pounds. And its worldwide gross was like $70 million. Oh, wow. And that's the kind of thing that even if you haven't handled a big production, a studio wants to maybe give you one because it gotcha. seems like you can turn an amount of money into a much larger amount of money, which <laughs> studio executives are in favor of generally. But he's like a, he's, I mean, he's an interesting guy, but he's like a total kook dude, cookie dude. Yeah, he, and he doesn't, he <laughs> didn't have enough, <laughs> didn't have enough people like behind him to shield the kookadoo, you know what I mean? Like, you need to have, like, your your AD's gotta be, like, all right, I'll handle the... Someone's gotta handle Val Kilmer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, Val I mean, Kilmer was so mean to him. He's no definitely, boy. having seen Dr. Moreau, when I saw I saw it in a theater with a Q&A afterwards with, I think, one of the producers who was involved. So I'd seen the movie and knew, so I knew how much of a mess it was. And I knew Richard Stanley had been involved, but I didn't know exactly, like, where he left the production. So I had in my mind that, like, the main problem was that Marlon Brando was just being the most eccentric actor guy ever. But in the documentary, to the extent that there is a primary villain, it's Val Kilmer. Because by the time that Brando even gets the set, Richard Stanley's left because of all the problems, which some of them are, like, him being a butt in above his head some of it is just freaks of nate like yeah a yeah. hurricane why yeah. are we yeah. the set that's yeah. not his fault but or, then all the rest of it is val kilmer <laughs> looking at it now it's so funny like marlon brando at that point i mean marlon brando still has a big reputation years after his death largely because he was in a number of big things that have like a good reputation at the time he became famous he was sort of the first kind one of the first actors like him who had been famous so I think like 
that cements him in his, in film history. But then, like, you gotta have Val Kilmer with a, as big an ego as Marlon Brando because there's, like, a few years where he's famous because he's Batman or whatever. Like, <laughs> and then just a few years later, like, yeah, who cares? <laughs> just seemed like such a trip the whole like like okay so he's told he has to leave and they buy him a plane ticket and he's not allowed to they're like we'll pay we'll pay you your entire salary and like rich I think and even give you yeah rich stanley and even give you royalties but you can't come within 40 kilometers. miles or kilometers of the shoot and so he gets like <laughs> there's these like australian like just dudes <laughs> dude bros that like drop him off at the airport and then they find out that he didn't get on the plane and they're like, I don't know where he is. And so they like, they bring in this new director who's insane also. And, but just in a different way. And, um, the new director's like, we need more crazy freaks. And so they just put a casting call to like hippies and whatever that are on this like tiny island in Australia. And lo and behold, Richard Stanley shows up. And well, I think ahead, it's even ahead. weirder than that. I think right, they find him just hanging out in a bathtub. By yeah, by yeah, a, yeah. He, he's staying at a farm owned by like a guy who doesn't have any legs. Yes. and they find him sitting in a bathtub by the river. The guy that drove him to the airport lives in like a squat, and one of the guys he lives with is like, yeah, telling him the story of like, oh, there's this guy who was like, I got kicked out of this movie because of Val Kilmer, and he's <laughs> and he's like, wait, Richard Stanley is in Australia, <laughs> and so they like go and find him, and he's like hanging out in this bathtub in the woods, and um, yeah, and they're like, so- and Rich is like, well, how's it going, guys? Like, it's a mess. You want to come see? <laughs> Here, yeah, we'll hide you in a dogman mask, uh, and you can be one of the extras. I haven't got. I didn't go back to watch the movie to see if I can see the dog mask man guy, but Richard Stanley is almost certainly in that film. Yeah, he, he yeah, is. No, extra. they show they show a still from oh, it where what? it's like Val Kilmer is like dancing around, and there's the guy with the dog mask, and they like. <laughs> Like he, it's like really hot, and all the extras are taking off his masks except for him. So the AD notices that and is like, "Hey, man, you're doing really good." Like by the way, and they all think he's okay. So Richard Stanley is also into like witchcraft too, and they think that he's going to. Yeah, the sabotage studio the is set. so sure that he's going to go nuts and torch the whole set when really the whole thing is falling apart with him gone anyway. He doesn't have yeah. to do anything. Yeah, that part where you learn that he's on the set as an extra is part where you think no this is too perfect yeah and then at some point before the film is made when he's trying to get everything to come together oh because they tried to get rid of him before way before they started filming they didn't yeah, want him the anymore. studio you know he had all these cool ideas which definitely were not in even his final draft because he was originally yeah. going to set the story of dr moreau in the city and have a bunch of dog doctors doing operations on people <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i think uh, for but, a while he's on like he's only still the director because marlon brando wants him mm-hmm. uh, yes exactly that's why but he thinks he says the reason that, that happened was because he met with his friend skip who's a british warlock and skip My chappy skip he's a warlock <laughs> yeah yeah. So Richard Stanley is from South Africa originally, but he yeah. sounds like he's from New Zealand. It's bizarre. He's really, I think, a more enjoyable documentary to watch than Hodorowsky's Dune <laughs> because there's so much more chaos that happens. Yeah. Hodorowsky's Dune 
you're like, oh, well, look at all these very extremely talented artists that didn't get to make this mm-hmm. movie. But this one, you're like, holy moly. <laughs> yeah, there's, I mean, there's certainly, and Hodorowski is a big personality, and there's some funny stories, like, he wants Mick Jagger to be in it, and so he happens to see them at a, see him at a party, and according to him, Mick Jagger, like, locks eyes with him, walks through a crowd of people. Hodorowski says, I want you to be in my movie. And Jagger just says, Yes, but yeah. the overall Lost Soul is more fun. My favorite part of it is all the people who are in charge have just stories about it or are high, like have a high status in the production. You know, it's just miserable stories about everything going wrong and all the other people being terrible. But because it's such a problem stricken production they end up paying all these weird australian extras to hang out and party for six months yeah so whenever they you interview them it's like yeah it was great (laughs) yeah bought a cool rc racetrack (laughs) in the hotel room yeah yeah, the woman who plays the pig woman they have so much footage of her just partying it's great partying in in the full pig woman woman ensemble i should say because it's that it's great it's really beautiful I think the, art is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I think the crew guy who ends up finding Richard Stanley in the bathtub by the river might not have driven him to the airport. It, he might be the guy who drove uh, Firuza oh, yeah. yes. all, <laughs> all across the continent to Sydney. Like from northern Australia to southeastern yeah. Australia. She's also in this movie and she's amazing. She's, she's a great. real life witch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Allegedly. She, and, She's friends with Richard Stanley, so when they fire him, she's yeah. indignant and wants to, like, storm off the set. So she asks the driver to take her to Sydney, because she doesn't know where that is, relative yeah. to where she is. And, he and the guy's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and I like when they asked her, you know, present day, 2014, when the documentary was made, they said, did you do that? She's like, ah, probably. <laughs> probably. Yeah, I ended up in Sydney somehow, so I guess... <laughs> I, that. <laughs> I was just mad okay they fired my friend marlo brando right, comes off she kind was rightfully of, mad he comes off kind of endearing to be honest <laughs> like he's fully aware of what he's doing and it, yeah brando <laughs> comes in and is a very different type of diva than val kilmer because val is just bullying everyone and brando is is treating it as a lark he's just mm-hmm. going in and yeah. saying no what if we do this and he rewrites the scene and the new director is like okay fine and we'll just do whatever brando says to make it work so yeah. he comes yeah. in with ridiculous new costumes and changes everything around and that's the final movie that we have now 1996's the island of dr moreau <laughs> i mean brando is both one of the giant egos who makes the film such a problem but he also fires a what is her last name? Bulk. Bulk. Yeah, I wanted to say Baikal, but that's a lake. <laughs> the deepest lake in the world? That's right. Uh, she has a story about talking, wanting to talk to him about like their character's relationship. And he just says, the script is a mess. It doesn't make any sense. So just have fun. We don't need yeah. to talk about our characters. <laughs> so he's like part of the problem, but he also realizes that the whole thing is silly. So doesn't want to go along with it, which does yeah. make him more sympathetic than what you hear about Val Kilmer. And also, I mean, considering that the end product is not very good, the main reasons to watch it now are because of all the ridiculous changes <laughs> he made to the film. I've never seen it. But I have read uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau. I 
Moses and I had to read it in <laughs> a class together. Oh no, I didn't. Right? We didn't read that one. We read the a book that inspired H.G. Wells to write Doctor oh, Moreau, which was called well, The Invention I have read Dr. of Morel. That's true. Uh, which is a very different island, but that's a great book. Well, anyway, I have read Island of Doctor Moreau. <laughs> I have not, <laughs> and I would recommend it. It is uh, it's classic, spooky, scary, spooky, scary. <laughs> oh yeah, Brando coming into Doctor Moreau. <laughs> was just like um i felt it was just like uh, salvador dali coming into dune and asking like pay me a million dollars now clearly trying to send everyone the whole system up as much as possible bottom line from watching these two documentaries is uh money is not good it's not it doesn't create good art uh <laughs> like a good filmmaker has to have a very specific image in his head of what a film should be but also has to be able to run this complex inter complex project involving dozens hundreds of people yeah they yeah. can be and, totally derailed by happenstance mm-hmm. at any time and Hodorowski's def- I mean Hodorowski got films made so obviously it's not like he couldn't do the second part at all but he's clearly an example of someone who has that mental image and mm-hmm. it's funny because the guy who they bring in to replace Richard Stanley oh my god John <laughs> Frankenheimer yeah, yeah Frankenheimer. something like that yeah is so, even his name yeah, <laughs> is so clearly only the second thing and has yeah. no internal vision whatsoever he's just like i'm a director kid i direct we're making a picture yeah (laughs) and he like just really resented it but he only took it because it was some cash money and they gave him like a three film deal yeah he seemed like such a jerk and then his ad is just like are you all right bud do you (laughs) like did he hurt you (laughs) like his ad is just defending him the whole time and you're like he seems like not a good man but all right I'll take it. Yeah, New Line Pictures does not come through that looking that great. In this oh time. my god! Oh not yeah, the, the president guy who's like, <laughs> he told the most. That was the most boring anecdote I think I've ever heard about <laughs> someone. That the way he said it, I was like, here's what I knew that Richard Stanley was a weirdo. He came in and ordered a coffee yeah. with four sugars. Four. <laughs> That's what I knew. I had a troublemaker on my hands. <laughs> <laughs> if you compare that to all of the Hodorowski stories, yeah. <laughs> No one can just put Hodorowski in a box like this. (laughs) He will defy all categorizations. He's definitely more uh, charming to people. And I think that gets people more on board. Whereas Richard Stanley is like, I'm a warlock. Yeah. Yeah. Always wearing his hat. But uh, his most recent film, which he made after not making any... He made some documentaries after Lost Soul didn't work out. Um, But his first, like fictional feature length came out last year 2019 oh. two years ago color out of space which is based on a lovecraft story and that that's quite good i'd say it's certainly is it? having only seen hardware uh i'd say color out of space is his best film neither of them i mean after trying to make dune hodorowski didn't make anything any films uh, he made a bunch of comic strips they mentioned at the end of the documentary that like making the documentary he get he reconnects with his French producer and they decide yes. to make another film which turned into La Danza de la de Realidad, which right. is, nah, I saw it years Not ago. Worth it. It's sort of semi autobiographical. The guy likes himself too much. Take take a seat, but And he like he's in it as himself, like following his child self around and talking to him but yeah he also wrote a bunch of like books about psycho magic and stuff like that big into magic 
here are two screenplays the next for the rest of the episode that didn't even make it to the director stage. One of them was turned into both a comic book and an an audible audio drama, and the other one is just floating in the ether out there <laughs> to be consumed. Let's talk a little bit about William Gibson's Alien Three. So it, he mockingly sums it up as space commies hijack alien eggs. Big problem in Mall World. So the most, and I'd never seen Alien Three, so I also watched that after listening to to the uh, audio drama. I think the thing that clearly doomed it from the outset is that Ripley is not a big part of it and Sigourney Weaver is one of the franchise's biggest assets so I think Mm -hmm. it never really had a chance that might have also been a direction from like well we don't know if she's going to come back for a third one so write a script without her Mm -hmm. I know it's kind of nice that the script just gives her a break like you don't need to have more terrible things happen to you (laughs) yeah whereas (laughs) the last two movies were traumatizing enough whereas Alien 3 it's just like oh those people you cared about they're dead from the beginning immediately and we're just going to have more and more bad stuff happen to you. Um, I did like it. I, I enjoyed it, the, this Alien 3. I liked the um, the easing of the Cold War, the, the communists and the mm-hmm. and the capitalists come together in the end to fight a common enemy. A true message <laughs> of unity, a united humanity against space monsters. Compared to the Alien 3 that got made, William Gibson's script makes the world much more interesting, whereas mm-hmm. Alien 3, the film adds nothing isn't it like on a prison base or something like that it's a prison planet full of hardened criminals with two y chromosomes who like decide to stay on the planet because they're sort of they become like monks except very few of them seem to actually believe in much of anything they just don't like women (laughs) uh which adds the whole kind of the feeling you get in the whole movie that this gross feeling of like we're gonna do all we can to Ripley (laughs) so in the first two alien movies you just have Wayland Yutani and you have no sense that there's anything but this corporation in space and alien William Gibson's Alien 3 script introduces like no there's the Soviet Union in space too well it's like a coalition of all the communist countries (laughs) and all their accents yeah and all their accents exactly (laughs) great for the radio play before they even introduce it when it's like wait I'm sorry (laughs) a bunch of South Americans Chinese and Soviets are on this ship is this some sort of coalition of communist countries? <laughs> but yeah, so you have them researching the alien because they think, they feel like they have to research it as a weapon because they think that Wayland Utani is researching it as a yeah, weapon. They, which they, they correctly are. figure out. And then turns out, like, nope, that was a terrible idea. We did both <laughs> stop doing this. <laughs> they all got wasted. And, and in Alien 3, the movie, Wayland Utani is sort of still the bad guys because it's frequently mentioned that no, they're just coming to pick up the alien because they think it's a weapon, but they're not present in the film. Just you have this guy who looks like Bishop, um, but is Bishop's creator, which they send for some reason he's still alive and the same age and they send him to reassure ripley as though it wouldn't make her five times more paranoid badly executed but everyone loves working with lance henriksen i think is the moral of that one he's the actor who plays bishop whereas in william gibson's alien 3 you have the you have introduced that basically the weapons division of this company does whatever they want in space which is Kind of funny. And you have the actual representatives of Wayland Utani on the station as the villains. Because, jerks. Because he writes the alien as having this sort of like biomechanical DNA that can hybridize with things. They like take over the weapons division people. Oh. 
some point it suggests that the aliens are like the product of an ancient weapons program already that got out of hand. The way he writes them, they're sort of this autonomous force that tries to reproduce itself in any way it can and in different ways depending on what new situation it's in so it's yeah. much and that's like... one thing that ridley scott definitely took and went with in the new alien movies in prometheus, prometheus. Mm-hmm. yeah the way william gibson writes it the aliens are much like capital itself which makes them a good like parallel for Wayland Utani. Yeah, I think conceptually it's much better script than the one they used to make it, which I think was mostly written by like producers. Who directed it? David Fincher. Yeah, mm. this is his debut feature. And yeah, and because you don't have actual Wayland Utani people there to be the villains, the main, the closest thing to a villain is just bad because he's very British. <laughs> I, yeah, I enjoyed the William Gibson one certainly more than the movie that got made. But also I found it pretty, you know, it wasn't as like artistically ambitious as these other Podorowski's Dune or Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. He, and intentionally he's like, well, I'm just making a third in this alien movie. So the template's yeah. already there. Alien's yeah. going to get loose and kill a bunch of space people. That's the movie. I'll put these cool other this other stuff in there but i i'm not gonna distract from this alien is getting loose and people have to crawl through a space station getting picked off one by one by the alien. it also doesn't really have like um like william gibson-y cyberpunky themes yeah except for i think like one of the it's not noticeable in the comic book version but i think you kind of hear it in the background in the audio production that the like life rafts are you have to like pay to be on them or there's some really annoying like commercial message constantly playing <laughs> in the escape like the escape pods but no yeah, it doesn't good little flares like that but nothing like strongly yeah it doesn't flagrant if no. you yeah if you know it's gibson and you think about it there's a few bits that are like yeah it's gibsony but it's not it doesn't feel strongly cyberpunk or anything also oh. if you are a person who is scared by aliens in movies i would recommend listening to this because <laughs> it's not very scary when you listen oh to yeah it. <laughs> the, uh, so the 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 director producer of the audio version the audio play on audible dirk mags yeah he's got a good name he also you look up a picture of him also he, lo- he looks very impressive he also directed and produced the neil gaiman's the sandman uh, audio oh really production, which was pretty pretty recent and yeah i listened to all those recently they're they're good first of all no game is the same it's great yeah he looks great (laughs) (laughs) this is not even what i imagine what he looks like he looks like a magician like a like a las vegas i've got a tiger and i'm a magician he does not look like a man who's spending hours in front of a uh, meticulously designed sound meticulously effects. Meticulously designing sound effects. Guys, look up Dirk Mags. D-I-R-K-M-A-G-G-S. And then also listen to the Alien 3 screenplay or the Neil Gaiman Sa- Sandman. <laughs> Before we leave Alien 3, I think it's my favorite line just written in the script anyway, but it's also my favorite delivery in the audio, audio drama. Two of the characters are talking about, now they don't really want to do what Willie Dutani wants them to do, but one of them's talking about, like, I work in space. They're the only company you can work for in space. Like, where else are we going to get a job? Right. And the other one says, well, I don't know about you, but I'm an ecologist. <laughs> As if that gives them infinite employment wherever they want. (laughs) It is very like, maybe Moses, you can talk about it more, but the curse of the scientists now where like, if you want a job, you got to work for uh, like 
people doing bad things. <laughs> <laughs> you got to work for the big. Oh, yeah. sure. Yeah, it's um, it's rough out there. So where the money's at, um, where the money was not at, because nobody wanted to fund this film, is <laughs> Ronnie Rocket by David Lynch. Okay, I don't even know where here's to a, start. Let's have a, yeah, here's a <laughs> respectful pause. Then this respectful pause is for you, the audience, so that we don't all just shout out breasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Seriously? David, there are so This script every single woman has to take her top off and ask, and beg the main character to rub her breasts yes. in this movie. Yeah. Damn, I'm kind of disappointed in that. <laughs> On the other hand, he wrote it in whatever, 75 or right around right after he wrote Eraserhead. After so, so yeah. We were all young men once, I guess you get it. <laughs> <laughs> Did both of you read the whole thing? I yeah. only made it like a tenth of the way. I read no, the I read thing. all of it. I just got to like learning that electricity is being fouled and then the knitters, but uh, so I did not make it to the breasts section. Oh, Ted. There's a lot of them. There are so many points where women that he, this detective character just meets inexplicably. Like he barges into their room and they're like, <gasps> Will you? Look at my gazongas. <laughs> And that's, some, and <laughs> that's what makes it science fiction, right? I think so. Yeah. And then at one point, David Lynch is writing a description of a character, and he just writes, Jane is a very beautiful girl who is stacked. <laughs> <laughs> so that is not like, that is not the central focus of the screenplay, but it is no. a major distraction. No. Uh, and it could be a reason why it, took, it still hasn't been produced to this day. Maybe Apparently. David Lynch refuses to compromise his artistic integrity and take out these breast scenes. I think he should probably cool it with the breast scenes because I, I don't even understand the, the symbolism behind them. To I be need honest, to, yeah, maybe the one where like they're all they're all living in this industrial city that's totally you know polluted and everyone is sickly with warts it. and stuff on their Sick, faces. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the women is is like, like, please help rub ointment on me. I'm so sore yeah. everywhere. And but then he puts ointment on her breasts, and she's like, "Ooh, yeah." Yeah, not too hard <laughs> because I'm sickly. I've been poisoned by uh, coal emissions, bad electricity. Bad electricity. <laughs> yeah, look, it's it's a surreal script. It's like, it's <laughs> very Eraserhead. Like, just picture all the scenes from Eraserhead, and then a few of them will have a a guy. Uh, shooting electricity out of his mouth and playing yeah. guitar. But he it's did about... want the whole thing in color. Yes, he did. Colored, really? color yeah. eraser head. Yeah. I couldn't stop picturing it. I had to picture it in black and white. I couldn't help it. It's about electricity and a three-foot guy with red hair. I think the red hair is really important. The pompadour wig that this guy wears. Speaking of the symbolism of being stacked, there's a scene early on where one character like tries to explain symbolism to another. Yeah, I, he tries to explain it at the very beginning, and you're like, okay, this movie's all about symbolism? It's nonsensical enough that at some point I started reading a lot of it in like a Trump voice, because <laughs> when, he's, he starts ex- when one character starts explaining that the electricity is fouled up so they need to like use electrical trucks to pipe the electricity out it totally sounds like a trump not understanding something at a campaign rally and just riffing there's a a weird polyamorous relationship also with deborah brad and bob or deborah dan and bob dan and bob being like the pair of surgeons who make runny rocket yeah, they the create like a frankenstein basically yeah and are always getting in like weird fisticuff like slapstick yeah, fisticuffs funny over other, nothing. but they're never fighting over deborah whom they both love and she loves both of them they do both it love is a Deborah. nice 
That was the nicest part of the screenplay, I'd say. Okay, at some point, I was reading that there were these people, like, attached to be on the project or planned to cast people on the project. These are some of the people that were planned, that he planned to cast. Uh, Dexter Fletcher, Brad Dorif, Dennis Hopper, Jack Nance, Isabella Rossellini, Harry Dean Stanton, and Dean Stockwell. And I really want to see a movie... (laughs) With Dennis Hopper, Isabella Rossellini, and Harry Dean Stanton. As yeah, as Dan, Bob, as, and and, and yeah, as Dan, Bob, and Deborah. <laughs> My God, yeah, that'd be a movie. Once upon a time, could have been a movie. Anyway, by the very end, uh, the main detective guy who's halfway investigating all this turns into a. He pictures himself as a giant dog bone being gnawed at by forty disgusting dogs, and that is supposed to appear behind a giant wall of flames in front of this audience. That's pretty much the end of the movie. Oh no, the very end of the movie is we zoom out and the universe is inside an egg and yep. there's a many-armed blue goddess holding the egg and sa- she says, Ronnie Rocket. And the <laughs> very... that's how you end a movie. <laughs> well, the very first, like, stage instruction or, you know, like, the first lines are black, fade in a giant stage, enormous with black curtains, open. The entire stage is filled with a wall of fire 200 feet high. Yeah. <laughs> that's how you begin a movie. Yeah. Formal unity. Anyway, I will put this up on our website for you yeah, to read as well. Yeah, anyone can read well. it for free. Anyone it's can the, read it. It's, in, it's on the internet zone. Winchnet.com. Uh, I guess it was at some point in time, Dino De Laurentiis' company was going to produce it. Francis Ford Coppola's American Zoetrope was going to produce it. And then they both went bankrupt. And it just never happened. Reading Running Rocket, which... It makes it more impressive that David Lynch managed to make something as relatively normal as his version of Dune. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Also, Moses sent this to us earlier, and this is just a snapshot of some of the dialogue in this film, but uh, there's two characters, Terry and the detective. Oh, should we read this one together? Yeah, yeah. Who do you want to be, Moses? All right, I'll be Terry. All right. So So this is like like an underworld or i'm not really sure where he goes in this world but he goes somewhere deep into the city the detective and he meets terry he's an old man with a sore uh, a sore on his leg that he keeps hitting with the flies water how's the sandwich pretty good yeah i like that cheese huh yeah cheese is made from milk end scene that (laughs) (laughs) that's a beautiful scene Really? David Lynch has a real ear for dialogue. That's how my wife and I talk to each other. It's another one. It's Terry has this long paragraph where he explains how this guy, Hank Bartels, is fouling up the electricity. And the detective just responds by saying, if I lose consciousness, I die. And it's true. <laughs> yeah. It, comes, it happens many times where he has to you, keep jabbing himself with needles to stay alive. Even better is when Terry asks him, he's like, so you're a detective, huh? Detective says, yeah. <laughs> Terry says, okay, smart guy. What are the three rules of a detective then? The detective just says, stay alert, concentrate, stay clean. Oh, we didn't even talk about the most important part about the detective. The only reason why the detective is the guy that can oh, save us all is because he can. Man. The thing that makes him a Superman is the fact that he can stand on one foot <laughs> and nobody else can. That's right. The two biggest reveals of the whole screenplay are that this guy can stand on one foot, which no one else can do. And they figure out the way to kill the villains is to point at them and say, hey, look, your shoe's untied. And then they explode in, in anger. Oh, and then, oh, the best, another good 
which would be a really this is a very david lynchian moment where he like goes to this hotel and he's like can i get a room and the guy's like we only got one room but it's got knitters in it and he's like knitters i don't want knitters and he's like listen you gotta deal with the knitters and he walks in and it's just two little old ladies knitting and then they follow him around everywhere there is like groupies so impressed by his one leg standing Ooh, he could stand on one leg if you'd like to learn more about transcendental meditation (laughs) send a self postmark (laughs) envelope to to david lynch (laughs) yeah these are i've got lots of pamphlets These kinds of scenes written about women's breasts can only be found when you lock yourself in a dark room for a while. There are so many of them. I should have kept a tally every time it happens in the script. It's more than it's more than three times. One last time, if you just listen to this entire show and thought to yourself, hang on a second. Weren't they supposed to play music? Well, now, you're listening to the podcast edit of this show. If you want to listen to the music, go to lastrefugepod.com. You can find a playlist of all the music that we play and links to the mix cloud and all that good stuff. And um, enjoy. Okay, guys, thanks for listening. Thanks for being there. Thanks for, you know, turning on, tuning in. Um, and lynching right. out. <laughs> and lynching out. Uh, next week, Let's we're do doing it. this kind of amorphous theme. It's not really amorphous. We're, we're, comedy. Yeah, Jokes. it's just comedy. Jokes. But In but sci-fi. Like, yeah. You and know. we couldn't narrow it down, so we're just going to wing it. Yeah, we're going to kind of wing it. But I'll edit it. Or <laughs> never mind, I won't edit it, because all of this is scripted. Every thing that comes out of our mouths right now is scripted very natural reading yes okay (laughs) check out our website for links if you want to read rocky ronnie rocket lastrefugepod.com send us an email at the last refuge of the incompetent at gmail.com you know what leave us a voicemail if you feel compelled to our voicemail line is 805-253-3091 805-253-3091 and a college student will listen to it there's a serial a radio serial a sketch a series of stuff there's the thing that you heard before this episode went in i about an hour and 50 minutes ago relax call anyway check out the incompetence on a podcasting platform near you and i hope that you go to sleep tonight dreaming of breasts (laughs) sweet dreams incompetence (laughs) science fiction